0: My name is Chris Charbonneau, and I'm the host of the Fall of Roe podcast. I'm a 40-year veteran of the pro-choice movement. I have been the CEO of Planned Parenthoods in seven different states and have decades of experience in the pro-choice realm. This is an unapologetically pro-choice podcast We are going to talk about the disaster that is the unfolding dismantling of the Roe standard across the United States, creating 50 states worth of patchwork laws, the danger that that poses to anyone of reproductive age and all of us who love them. We need to figure out how we as a collective are going to get through this, change this situation, give ourselves some hope, and get back to sanity in this country. Good morning, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau, and with me is the Reverend Monica Corsaro. Monica was Planned Parenthood's first affiliate-based chaplain when we began to to try to cater to the people that had spiritual and other kinds of needs around their reproductive health care and access. And it was a true pleasure to finally, in our ranks, have people who could provide that level of counseling to people who were in various stages of crisis in their reproductive health decision-making. And I re- just remember how shocked people were that Planned Parenthood would have chaplains. And since then, uh, Monica Corsaro has gone on to be a chaplain for various universities and, and um, other church concerns, And so with us today is Monica Corsero to talk about the role of ministers and chaplains historically and going forward in the fall of Roe. Monica, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be here this morning. Terrific, terrific. So you and I both know in the history of the pre-Roe movement, there was a massive group of clergy people who were being helpful to women who needed to find an abortion in various places, so much so that an organization called the clergy consultation service began in 1967 and continued well into um, the post, you know, Roe decision days to help women access abortions. Tell me, because you and I are not of an age that we would have been, Inventing that in 1967, but um, what do you hear from colleagues about what that was like? Because we know some people who were around then.
1: Yeah, and un- unfortunately, we're losing them, you know, due to time space continuum. But I just was doing some research on it for a commentary I did back back on the prairie, and these were folks who did not think of themselves as heroes or shiros at all. They were very pragmatic and as some of the founders said, we, because back in those days, clergy were called in and they're getting called in to do the last moments of someone who is dying from a botched abortion. And so all of the sudden we have clergy, both Christian and Jewish, who are becoming crisis counselors and death counselors, for lack of a better word. So just kind of out of pragmatism, they're like, we're not going to do this anymore. So they They sought out, reached out for doctors um, in the the reading that I was uh, doing, said who were willing to do legal and illegal procedures, you know, depending where you were. And of course, it was international, meaning folks uh, from New York took people to Canada when needed. We here in the West know about the weekenders that were taken to Japan Mm -hmm. and back. But in the interviews of the folks that I saw, and these, of course, because it was a different time, these are men. These are men who are taking it upon themselves that this cannot be happening. But what I'm impressed with, Christine, is that none of them thought of themselves as over and above, no, this is what we do. right. They would say, and I remember when I would interview them when back in Planned Parenthood days and just talk to them and I'd be in awe of them sitting with them, they're like, no, 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 you would have done the same thing. So so the humbleness, the humbleness, the practicality and the and the understanding of the separation of church and state. Again, we are not a theocracy. I am a religious leader. I take care of people. That's part of what I do is my cause of clergy. I mean, this is their understanding and mine too, but but as they're living it out. And there is no tension in that we are going to do this because we are saving lives and God trusts women and entrusting these women who who are making these decisions. What I also love about this in celebration of quote unquote traditional roles, a lot of times it was the clergy spouse or i.e. in this case, the clergy wife who would sit with and companion with the person as she's going in a car, on a plane, wherever, to wherever. So it's it wasn't cold that there, you also have included the hospitality and the care in those of us who are in this business believe in.
0: So is it fair to say that um, these people, the couples and in, in the ways that they both contributed, saw this as their ministry or part of it? Yes. And as those of us that kind of walk these
1: walks, you know, this is, this was the founding of what became the religious coalition for reproductive choice. And what I love about it too, it's such and such synagogue. It's such and such church. It's such and such. I really do imagine it as the round table. We're all doing it from where we come from. There's no hierarchy here. We're all here and and we're doing a network and we're going to connect, connect, connect. That's what we're about. No. Kind of what you're doing now, right? There's no rules. Just we need to have the conversation. Right. We need to be changing the world. We need to be saving
0: democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that's at the crux of all this too. Right. And And in that these folks were in the middle of something that was highly illegal, I don't remember ever reading of a prosecution of any of these people of faith for helping. They tried.
1: One of the articles I was reading is that he was, They were trying to indict him. And then I've just read a couple of cases where they are doing hearings that a lot of us are watching right now. Well, they were doing hearings in front of Congress to say, nope, this is why we need Roe v. Wade. Like Roe v. Wade hadn't happened yet, right? But this is why we need this because A, B, C, D. So there were threats. There were
0: threats, but none of them, nobody was prosecuted. So that's an interesting note for going forward. It is, isn't it? We don't have to be fearful. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's right. Because uh, I think our opponents in this understand that hauling clergy in front of courts would be a really bad look, Um, especially people who are invested in this because they're so compassionate that they're finding out these stories in the course of the spiritual counseling they're doing with people and they do what it takes to be helpful and make sure nobody dies and and then what Texas and Idaho are going to release vigilantes after them to cash in on the clergy you know i i think that uh this is where it gets real for the insincerity of the anti-choice movement and
1: that it's not about the sacredness of life at all is it mm-hmm. it's about power and who gets to to be in power not everybody knows of my past on the prairie. And so, you know, I will tell them, no, 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 I have been face to face with people who have signed the Justifiable Homicide Act. And again, that idea of these anti-choicers that sign their little constitution or their little whatever that says, I am justified in killing a provider. And so what? What? <laughs> what? Sacredness of life? And I think we're running into that conundrum that you and I have run into in all the years we've done this work. We have smart people on the one side thinking it would never get to this. We will never lose Roe. And while you and I and you and I and, and others study the people who are fighting to get this and have been and have been diligent and take seriously their theocracy and their really bad theology to do this. And never the twain shall meet, but I guess we're going to meet up again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as we try to not go back. And And again, has any other democracy done this where you've had rights
0: for 50 years and now we're going to take them away? It's, it's pretty shocking uh, all around that once again, we're in this position. But where we start in this position is with the knowledge and the history of the role of the clergy last time and you know enough people still alive um i i read um reverend tom davis's excellent book sacred work planned parenthood and its clergy alliances from rutger's press 2005 back in the day tom uh davis is a f- a friend of mine and he goes through the entire history of what they were up to and and how it all worked and and that is knowable today, um, which I think would give clergy a jumpstart. Are you hearing, Monica, people talking about resurrecting those um, linkages and the interclergy connections connections and, and all of that in advance, anticipating the Supreme Court decision? Not on the ground, because there are so many
1: distractions now <laughs> staying open. A lot of churches are struggling to stay open. You know, you think back to the 60s, the coffers were full at the churches. People knew what it was like, that it was illegal. We have a whole generation that's never lived with it being illegal. And so that's what I'm meaning about, like talking about it a minute ago. We have people who don't believe we could ever be there. That's who's kind of in charge now and around. And so it's too esoteric. This definitely is a time for for a wake-up call but th- that's at least in this moment, in this time, and maybe um, two weeks now, it'll be different. I feel like there's this denial, right? And the river of denial is long. That's not to say that I'm not ready to get up and go and and to follow in Tom Davis's uh, footsteps. Of course, he's a mentor of mine. I think he ends the book with you and me, like <laughs> with with, and now... And now Uh we have the first chaplain of the, we are definitely in there. Um, He (laughs) he told me so, but no one's reading the book, Uh right? No, no. I mean, (laughs) that's it. People don't know history or her story. And, And we have to first tell the story and say, no, we will not have this. I think the right has taken, again, the microphone, the pulpit to say, to be a true Christian, you have to believe A, B, C, and D. They don't know that. Well, no, no, no. No, no, no. There, there are many ways in which to believe and many paths to go. And in fact, what I preach and teach is is the longer version. Fundamentalism is rarely is pretty new in far as the the length of Christianity. And it started pretty much in the 20th century with Fosdick preaching, really doing radio ministry and then Billy Graham taking it and, you know, times 10. But they're the newer version of Christianity. So we have to, one, we have to educate people on what Christianity is, right? And so the other area I work in is religious literacy and have been doing interfaith work at colleges and universities, and we're illiterate. This is why it's so easy for stuff
0: to happen as it happened. Can you say a little bit about that? There are huge numbers of denominations and different faiths and and different traditions that consider A person's own moral agency to be the factor involved here and not, I mean, I think people are most familiar with the Catholic dogma, which, to be fair, changed a lot from the new, for old history to the new. But um, talk to me a little bit about all the pro-choice religious tenets that there are in people's organized religions. Let's start with Judaism. So
1: in Jewish theology, it's always about the community. And remember, it was a, a community that moved. They caravans and and a moving culture and society. So water, just living is difficult. So if you're doing it with a family of three and everyone else, and now you find yourself pregnant, your or your family pregnant, and that's going to be one more mouth to feed. Literally, one more mouth to give water to and sustenance. The sacred thing to do, the thing that honors all life, is to say. We are not ready to carry this pregnancy through. And in fact, at the quickening, that's when it was allowed, which which you got to love these ancients because that's pretty much the majority. You know, you don't you don't go past the quickening, right? You we abortions, we do up to 12 to 14 weeks, right? I mean, in most states, except for the ones that we need to go the exceptional ones. Yeah, the exceptional ones. So so even the ancients got it. They got it. Hey, when there's some kicking. (laughs) But before that, we have a chance. And in fact, that will be a blessing. We know we will have a chance again to have a child and that child will be blessed. But for now, it's irresponsible to cause all of our children to starve to have one more. So if we are saying that we are a democracy, not a theocracy, we have to honor that legitimate theology as much as we do if we have a theology that says life begins at conception in in this experiment of democracy we have to hold both of these equally and I think we definitely know that our pre-Roe v. Wade clergy understood that because nuns were involved in this as well yes they were and I've also learned in both um, when you hang out on these interfaith tables right we have coffee and we go talk about this stuff and we call it work and it is good, right? <laughs> and and, and uh, learning from one of my Jewish uh, rabbi friends, she talks about, there are laws, there's laws in Judaism. So even when you're talking about conservative or Orthodox, and we have this in Islam too, always to save a life comes first. So you might break the Sabbath because uh, you're watching somebody drowned. Well, on the Sabbath, I'm not supposed to do anything always to save a life. So you're going to jump in that water and save the life. Jesus was about that. Yes, we have laws. And there's reasons we have laws. And a lot of it is for identity because we've been oppressed, repressed, depressed. We have laws for But if the law gets in the way of doing love and doing right and doing justice, then it's a bad law. So I, I if I am preaching on the Sabbath as, as as his his rabbis would try to oh you're talking to you're preaching you're you know i talk every day Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean you know there's a there's and and people need to hear this message so in when you're when you're asking about these theologies there might be laws uh our dan mcguire that worked with us with planned parenthood a theologian that's based in university of wisconsin milwaukee he's the one that taught me about saint antoninus and he's the one that taught me a former priest who's now an he taught me uh, Saint Antoninus was this patron saint of abortion, and what I love him to say is, in Catholicism, you have the majority report, but there's always a minority report.
0: <laughs> Probably like every organization on the like planet, <laughs> every organization, and that we honor
1: now. Re- and where do we get universities from? We get universities from Catholicism. The idea that we are to gather together to share ideas. What's happening now? Right. We're saying religious freedom means I get to live my patriarchal I'm right, you're wrong and nobody else. So we got a lot of tables we need to organize here to help people understand that religious does not mean I get to believe what I believe and tell you what you believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Which is what's happened to women's body autonomy, because I I am right because I have God. No. No, you're wrong. Cause I have got, right. right. No, but I mean, it becomes a, a really easy way for people to manipulate others because we, we have become illiterate as far as religion's concerned. And, and you, I remember you and I had a conversation and it, it was, it was people struggling accepting me in the Planned Parenthood world. And you were like, Monica, this is the thing about folks. They think they have an astute understanding of Christianity because they grew up in a particular sect or a particular denomination. And so they've left it because they don't, it doesn't agree with them or their thought process. So they don't
0: know what they don't know. Right. Like all the other pro-choice or at least pro-individual decision-making theologies of all the other organized religions. Right. They may choose, and we talked about that,
1: like no one's going to diss a Muslim. They're just going to honor, because they're only learning, they're only learning in that part of Islam, and they they don't have enough um, history with it, like they did with their particular Christian church that they are unhappy with, that they think is all of Christianity. So you can't reduce all of Islam into one person. You can't reduce all of Christianity into one person. And, but here we are, and I, I, I meet students to this day, oh, I don't do Christianity anymore because... Of my particular church. I'm like, well, have you investigated other paths? Have you investigated other? So that's kind of where we're at. We then those, then those who are in the progressive churches, including the Unitarians, like are more, they're so busy trying to get people through COVID. Yeah. Are we meeting in person or aren't we? Has someone given the offering today? So many are dealing out of scarcity. Maybe this will be the miracle. You know what? We got to think bigger than ourselves and our own survival. And we got to think about what's that we have. We have lives that are now going to be
0: threatened in the most intimate way. So say a little more, because you began to talk about uh, Judaism. And obviously, there are a whole bunch of Protestant denominations where um, a woman's right to choose or a person's right to choose is uh, absolutely respected. Who are the kinds of people that sit at these interfaith tables and talk about this? So, yeah, we could say all the mainline denominations.
1: So uh, um, Episcopalianism is has a pro-choice stance. Congregationalism does. ELCA Lutheranism does. United Methodism does. Presbyterian uh, USA does. It's, it's you know, it comes from that, that Protestant ethic of we have autonomy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. We we oh Baptists, you know, in all their many iterations, we can say American Baptists. But I think Chris, people are weary. They're weary for all the
0: other stuff.
1: And weary, we have to do this fight again.
0: I know it's it's unbelievable to a good many people that, that we have this unforced error, right? Yes.
1: And being back in the Midwest, while I was at a very, very, very progressive college. You step right outside, and you're in Fundamentalville. Like it's amazing. It's, it's it's amazing that that in 2022 it feels like 1952, and they they are the loudest voices. So that doesn't mean I haven't organized. I definitely have organized, and I have an interfaith table. We meet. Well, in fact, in fact, they're gonna have to meet today without me today at 3 p.m. But um, where we keep this and other stuff on the table. I created the group because, believe it or not, there's churches that still discriminate against a person because of their sexuality. Oh, my God. Really? Yes, really. Mm-hmm. So and that set sort of clergy tried to bully us. So I created a table. I'm like, the only requirement of this table, you don't even have to be uh, serving a church right now. You can be retired. But the only requirement is you have to be um, unapologetically all inclusive to LGBTQI and all its many ways is expressed. Right. And then I include uh, women's reproductive freedom and health because it's all, it's, it's all connected Mm -hmm. and it's kind of what you're doing too. This is a uh, non-censored table. And then, then we're called, then if we're called to to be a witness, like to march in a parade, Mm -hmm. to write a letter to a right-wing Christian group that tries to get into the high school and call it a democracy day, we, we say, no, you're not allowed. So I think it's going to need to be, again, those tables that are getting created, but from the ground up, because here we are in this day. Remember Deb Hafner? Mm -hmm. That group is debunked now. There is no uh, sexuality, religious kind of go-to think tank they went under.
0: And so there's a silence that needs to, we need to fill up. (laughs) Exactly. Well, to that point, Monica, there is Texas, of course, is and now I guess Oklahoma are the only two states where they've had the nerve to fly in the face of an existing um, Supreme Court rights guarantee, which, believe it or not, Roe v. Wade still technically stands until we get this decision out that we saw a leaked version of. And um, there is a minister. Daniel Cantor, senior minister of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas, has called what they're doing in Texas, in terms of anti-choice legislation and all of that, a war on the poor. And this reverend runs a multi-faith chaplaincy with Christian and Jewish clergy. Sounds like Monica Corsero, but in in Texas. (laughs) In Texas. (laughs) and, and, um, And Reverend Cantor takes 20 women a week to new mexico quite openly to make sure that they can get their abortions and he does this in the face of having an existing law that would allow people to tag him for this and and potentially get $10,000 although i'm not sure that um the $10,000 thing will hold if the procedure is not done in Texas itself, I think maybe that's the, the problem that they have. Um, so uh Reverend Cantor's doing it, and I suspect that in states as they flip over like this, the states that we know are going to instantly become anti-choice, have bans on women's bodies in, in the the minute that Roe gets overturned, they will start to put this forward on their tables and and their the priority lists because these are people who minister to people in crisis and they would know. I'm definitely going to uh, get in touch with him and ask him how,
1: how it's going. This is a man speaking up to the man, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And God bless him, you know, Absolutely, and, and yeah. may, may she pour lots of blessings on him, right? <laughs> like <laughs> And just to keep it all balanced here. And I love it. And I'm hoping we can do the same thing. I'm, I'm watching in Illinois, right now, we're just like Washington. All the states around us will be in trouble, right? They, Missouri, Indiana, Iowa, and already uh, down south by St. Louis, that clinic is uh, on the East St. Louis side, uh, you know, is already inundated. And so we're gonna need us <laughs> to be doing this and standing at the border and going, come on. But what I love is that, It's a man. And I, uh, you know, we women sometimes forget that men do care about us and this. Mm -hmm. And especially the good ones, I can definitely stand side by side with and to honor that this is heartbreak for them too, because this is their mother, their sister, their spouse. And if we believe the texts, the universe does not want the poor to suffer. Mm -hmm. And we all know, we all know that and let's say this to the universe, abortions will continue to happen in the United States. It will just be those who can afford them. Women who cannot afford to do what you'll need to do to get your illegal abortion will die. And those will be women of color and poor folks. This is a theological crisis that if my colleagues and my friends um, sit by and watch this happen, so I'm hoping we keep talking,
0: we keep telling, but do you find people in denial? Yes, yes. I because I mean I think I think there's the intellectual part where we all sort of knew this could happen and we watched the Supreme Court thing and everybody sort of followed that along. There's just a piece in many of us that, that sort of sat back and thought surely we're not this stupid. Surely we have not taken leave of every common sense. And that's the part where I think people find their incredulity is that apparently we are this stupid, just stupid and, <laughs> and and that's a little you know i mean for people who believe in american exceptionalism that the trajectory of of a a country based on an idea you know of democracy like like um the United States would suddenly careen its way back into some sort of Christian nationalist nightmare is sort of unthinkable for the for the folks that sort of have the historical worldview that sort of every day gets more progressive than the day before, every day sees more justice, every day, and and those optimistic among us do do quote the great, you know, racial equity leaders who say you know the the arc of history bends toward justice and. I think we believe that fundamentally, but to see us dogleg like this into a prohibitionist hell because it serves a tiny, tiny, tiny political minority, that's, I think, the part that challenges people, that we are both that stupid and that we have allowed a tiny minority of our country to drag us into this. And affect our neighbors in Canada and affect our neighbors in Mexico and create a nightmare for a healthcare system that's already overburdened with a pandemic. That's a, the part I believe that people are having a really rough time with.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to not scare us, but I think we need to scare everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as you know i i came to celebrate this this weekend a good friend and a revolutionary <laughs> and i came to soak it up and to be in in spaces where i can have these conversations and then that i can then go back and see what well what do we need to do here and i do actually have people waiting for when i get back that are in this to win it and how do we connect up the country especially now when it's so easy where any of us can sit in any room at any moment, and go. All right, and let's go state by state by state by state and see how we're going to help take care of our citizens. So there are people waiting and wondering, and maybe maybe we got to come up with a to do list. I know people are overwhelmed with COVID, with uh, with their own economy, with with to work or not to work, to travel. Travel is a pain. Like every you know, we we have those of us that are paying attention. We're watching these hearings, and we're all we're all going. Well, it's right there. And we're going to see nothing happen, probably like we're dismayed and depressed about the gun situation in the United States of America. Like, you know, but you know what, Chris, we've been talking like this for 20 years. Remember 20 years ago? Oh, it seemed like it's so quaint now just fighting Bush. (laughs) But (laughs) but we were we were weary then too. the war on women. Mm -hmm. Remember? So it's like, wait a minute. Come on, people. Let's let's pull up our britches. Let's
0: let's get to work. Well, let's talk about that a quick second. So where where would the center of that be for clergy people who want to begin to rally around? Is it is it the organization? I know the name of this. Our car. Yeah. Religious Coalition to Reproductive Choice. Yeah, i I don't know, except I know Cantor
1: is working with the New Mexico affiliate. Yes, I know that. Mm-hmm. So I think what's happened with them is is what's happened with NARAL. Remember, our our cousins there too, disaffiliating, right? Not centralized anymore. So maybe we use that to our advantage and we all just, hey, my friends in New Mexico.
0: Hey, my friends in Ohio. Yep. Okay, my- people start reaching out to other people. And we're we're this time. Um, there's a lot of social media and this time you know people are putting their names and faces like you are on this show forward to be uh, people that people contact about you know their interest in this kind of work so i think that we are not stuck with our grandmother's solutions here no
1: and if anything I'm, and and this is this is how i think i think a lot of us think this way that have a more grown up way of doing theology in the intersection of the life we live and what are blessings and what are moments that we could have learned out of this disaster that we've just gone through called COVID? And one of them is we all know how to zoom now, don't we? <laughs> we all know how to we we do not have to have a conference to get it done. Right. We have social media. We have, you know, things like WhatsApp where we can talk to each other in real time and know we're talking to each other in real time. And we have all the things that you and I use now every day that we hated, well, I did, hated getting trained on to do, but Like, well, hello, look at what we can do. And what used to be, you could only talk with 12 people at a time. Now you can do 300. Not that I want to do that, but we can. And so I really do think it's doing a little wake up call, literally a wake up call to our sisters, brothers and siblings and saying we need to get to work and we need to not be separated by the powers that be say that we should be separated. I can't call you because... You're out of this group and not this group. There's no such thing of that anymore. No, you're my friend. I'm going to call you. Let's figure out what we can do. Excellent. Yeah. I think we have to keep taking the mic. And how about this, Chris? This still goes on in media. I'm listening to someone talk about the leak. And then they're interviewing representative so-and-so from the left. And the Reverend, da-da-da-da-da, who's who's speaking for the right. Why are you not speaking to the Republican? Mm -hmm. Why, Why is the left, the Democratic person, and the right is the religious person. Where's your religious person on the left? We, you and I, had to deal with this all the time
0: here too. Absolutely, like, yeah. People did not expect that uh, there were clergy that were pro-choice. So much so that then when when we'd take Monica or, or whoever else we took uh, on lobbying visits with collars on, it was always astounding to whoever we spoke to, particularly the Republicans, and they'd say, "How are you in that?" in that clergy collar or stole or whatever people had on. How are you with this group? And it's like, it might well be the majority of clergy in the United States that are pro-choice.
1: Yes. And I loved I loved your story that you told uh Valerie Trico when you were starting out in Arkansas with Planned Parenthood. You also did services for the nuns. Yes. Not just nuns who maybe got to know others in the biblical way, but nuns who have maybe been attacked and abused. So as we've said, there's always been abortions and there's always been abortions, no matter what your religion, they just were in the closet and we don't want to do that and it shouldn't have to be. And I love what we've been talking about this last weekend too, or the conversations I've been in. We don't need to have abortions. We have so many other strategies, what we do for people, for those, uh, again, those who need them, Mm -hmm. who need them, but we can prevent them. And I think you said there's only 800,000 abortions a year right now. That's right. right?
0: Like, you know, early in my career, there were 1.6 million. And then we got some better contraceptive morning after treatments. And then it dropped to 1.4. And then we got fabulous um, long-acting reversible contraceptives. And now we're down to about 800,000 unintended pregnancies in the United States a year. That is a success story based on good sexuality education and good contraception and long acting reversibles and people knowing about it and thank you ACA and everybody who voted for the affordable care act to make it possible for the most effective contraceptive methods to be provided across a much broader swath of people there's still a lot of people out there that that need to get that help And I think it would be a good idea for people who have choices to take advantage of those choices right now, as I've said on previous podcasts, before our friends on the right try to make those incredibly effective contraceptive methods difficult or impossible to get. And so, you know, we we already know that the next goal is Griswold v. Connecticut. They're not going to stop with Roe v. Wade, you know, because you can't control women until you control whether they control their fertility. And we all know that the LGBTQ community would be hanging by a thread as well in terms of marriage equality and a variety of other progress that have been made. And Monica, I think the clergy is concerned with all of this, right? That's the flock. Yes,
1: I think they're tired and we and so that's where I'm at with them. It's like I had I had one clergy friend that used to say when when people would try to organize us, right? Like a, if a labor person's coming to us saying, Will you sign this? Will you do this? And he's like, he's like, I've got 125 things on my list. You're 126. Tell me why you should be number one. That's where we're at. This is number one because, like you said, it affects everything else. And And, 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 we have to deal with that P word, privilege. We have so many who are retired now, who have the time, they don't have to worry about a church firing them or anything. And uh, I'm going to be reaching out to those folks because it's those folks that introduced me to the movement to to begin with. So when they were in their 40s and I was, you know, a, a college student. So I think there's ways to go about this. Again, look at the world we're living in. Like we were worrying about COVID. Yeah. But we've done this before. We've done this before. We've been in crisis before. You know, the 60s had Vietnam, the civil rights movement, assassinations, and they got Roe
0: v. Wade. Yeah. (laughs) You, You know, we- They got it done. They got it done. They got it done. So there's plenty of pain, obviously, to go around the world. And clergy people try to deal with all of it. And so this would represent just another hassle that they don't need, but they are by nature empathetic as a group, right, and care about the people that they're talking to and get to see people up close and personal in crisis. Let me ask you a question on that note. Hospital mergers,
1: another fun thing that we've had to be educated on. And now again, as I find myself on the prairie, the town I live in is 32,000 folks with a college. So very smart people, it's an elite school, uh, we're only PhDs, you only can work there if you have your doctorate. So very smart people. The independent hospital had been bought out by someone in tech, a very rich person that, that this was just, this was just another plaything for them. So they didn't care if it was running or not. The short of it is, the only hospital in town is a Catholic hospital now. There are no reproductive services. Except I guess now you get to speak in code with certain doctors that have credentials inside. Because of course, when I moved there, I refused to have my insurance be covered there. I did it elsewhere. I sought out my my PAC as I do everywhere I go. And I have a special relationship and I make sure stuff is done the way I want to. But this is what's happening. My smart people are going to that hospital.
0: Well, as, as they have to. I mean, you know, it's sort of like you, you could travel half a state in many places before you could get, you know, a hospital that doesn't operate by a set of religious directives that have nothing to do with the laws of your country. That's been happening all over the country. And people are concerned about that from the point of view of both, um, will they support people and save women's lives or not? And, you know, end of life, kinds of issues. And end of life. And I have to remind, it's so funny. I'm like, please don't look
1: at me as I get looked at for being that woman that's always bringing up the women. I'm like, no, 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 no. And it's also end of life. So that means all of us potentially will have parishioners that aren't going to get their directives met. I bring that out loud because I think that is also going on
0: as people think about how to go forward. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I've always wondered why that whole thing gets treated with such kid gloves. I am a total believer in religious liberty. I think if you want to practice your religion the way you want to, that's fine. There's not anything in the United States Constitution that says if you decide you're going to run your business according to a set of religious principles that don't actually match the laws of your you know, render unto Caesars, you know, a, your actual government, there's no rule that says anyone has to pay you for anything, right? So the power of the purse is great. And Medicaid should not be paying people who don't follow certain kinds of rules in terms of quality of care and expectation of the community. If you uh, admit a person who's hemorrhaging because she did her own abortion and you refuse to see her because insert, you know, objection here there's no reason in the world that you should be respected as an actual healthcare facility and and be reimbursed for anything i mean so up to this point people have treated this kind of thing with kid gloves but you know one could say if you don't want to do the job of being in healthcare and you don't want to do the job of being in medicine then we won't pay you for that job And you can go off and feed people. I mean, you know, there are many ways to have a ministry. You know, you just don't corner the market. And we don't allow you to corner the market in such a way that people have to be injured and maimed and you don't help them. Now, I will say in my actual experience across many states, Catholic hospitals don't turn away people that come in bleeding for things as a rule. They do, however, often make make us get to that point and so complicate the healthcare problems that are going on. There's nothing that says that people have an inherent right to be in a business that they refuse to follow the community rules to provide and that there's any reason that those people should get paid. I mean, you can do it as volunteers if you want to. You can do it completely untethered from, say, a Medicaid system or a Medicare system, And I think that uh, that's where the rubber needs to hit the road. If you are in a state that supports law X, um, the um, woman's right to choose, and you just are, you know, you've bought up all the hospitals and you just refuse to play, then I think that there should be financial consequences to that. And I think unapologetically so. This is a, a pluralistic society. We didn't all sign up for those religions. I don't think There is a particular way to stop people from buying a hospital because of their beliefs. But um, you sure don't have to do business with it in the same way that you would an organization that actually takes care of all the healthcare needs of the people that they see.
1: Or like you said, it sure seems like you could create some legislation, create some regulation. The beautiful thing um, in my little my little burg that I live in is um, our mayor is Jewish and is very aware of such things. And that's interesting. That's a good that's a good word, because I you and I know um, definitely these hospitals
0: have been taken to court, but it seems like then there's no follow up. Right. Well, I mean, I think for all the reasons that we put our country together as an idea that there should be religious freedom, those folks have religious freedom too. where it comes a cropper, I think, is sort of this and you all need to pay us for it and you all need to give us financial incentives to set up a situation that doesn't serve people in these and such ways. It's like, yeah, no, that part is a bridge too far. And I will say that I have worked closely with a lot of Catholic entities that have done some excellent work on HIV AIDS. And many of them are even very good at, at the end of life things. It was sort of less the hospital getting involved in that and more, you know, family member who can't let go of their loved one that is actually in the process of dying, that kind of thing. But if we were to ever run into, we won't take care of this woman properly because she is in this condition because of her abortion, I would personally figure out how to fund a way for that hospital system to be sued for medical malpractice and patient abandonment. Just so that we're all clear, there are lines that can't be crossed here. And I think it's in- incredibly important that um, we understand the limitations of who gets to put what ideology down anyone else's throat. Yeah. In the name of because we serve the poor <laughs> or we serve everybody. It's like, no, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no. Right. And somehow we, I want to help empower people like in the hospital case or or even let's do we could do m- macro and micro so as you and I know a hospital cannot have a conscience but yet they get to write in conscience clauses yeah but,
0: but you, and but and let's I, stop let's stop yeah. there for a minute because a hospital can't have a conscience because only people have consciences right consciences, and, and yes. they have argued successfully in many states that that entities can have consciences. I mean, this is an extension of this idea that corporations are people. Thanks, Mitt Romney, again, for that, you know, gem. Um, So they're not only people, but they're sentient people, apparently. And therefore, laws need to be written that blanket cover that. And the reason that some hospital entities go for these, you know, conscience clauses that affect an entire corporate structure is that You know, 80% of the people inside that corporation wouldn't buy off on that if you couldn't have the corporate overlay on top of it. So there are no Catholic hospitals where all the providers are Catholic. And there are no entities where everybody agrees that you shouldn't take care of this young woman in this way. All the doctors want to do is take good care of people, and they know often what that entails. And so it allows for a corporation to exert the dominance of whatever the, the owners want over that of the conscience of the individual providers on the ground who are seeing the person and are trying to, to help them. And to that point... If, in fact, something goes terribly wrong in those hospitals, those corporate structures with all their feelings will turn against that provider in a heartbeat and say, well, you know, really, our thing was just a suggestion. You're the one that didn't take care of her and now she's you know, dead and that's your fault. Um, So don't, don't imagine for a second that if you work in one of those settings, it provides you any protection if this really hits the fan.
1: Yeah. And I feel like I need to be the one that sits with the person in the hospital that that hospital is saying, it's because of our faith, you can't get services. And then it's that, but then you're saying to that person, but so then my faith isn't important. That's right. Or, or when people say to me, well, I'm religious, well, so am I. Mm-hmm. So how do we deal with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and a whole people, and especially at the other tables I'm at, we are an interfaith country now. We are not. God bless America Mm -hmm. (laughs) anymore. Mm -hmm. Not that we ever were, but anyway. So that adds to this conundrum as as we need to start our new consultation network, it's gonna be a network that looks very different. Yes.
0: First of all, it's not all men, although they're welcome, right? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's
1: right. That's right. That's right. As long as they follow and follow my direction. But, but, <laughs>
0: uh, that's right. It, but it's, but yes. from every faith and, and isn't that in some ways, um, isn't that some ways a massive advantage that, you know, you're really reaching out into a lot of different faith communities. And there are those possibilities of people really working together on a real project that really matters to a lot of people's lives.
1: And, The acodeme in me says this is this is one last breath of supremacy, patriarchy doing their last huff because they know they know that the United States is this wonderful place of I I like to say it's a rainbow coalition in every definition of the rainbow, Mm -hmm. like where people come from, who they love, what they do, what religion they are, brown, uh, black, white everything between and beyond and it's a it's a beautiful thing and we just got to get there with with as less lives being lost as possible so that's that's sort of what gives me hope when i'm like oh my god you know that really so many of us we get to be in so many circles where it truly is the america that our parents immigrated to be here for right so it's there it's there and so many stories of I have so many Muslim women that I students that I got to work from with from Pakistan who love the states because they're heard and they're respected. They get to speak in the classroom at the same time and same level that their their guy uh, students get to. And that that was new for them. So I kind of feel like we are this great democracy. So we have some responsibilities to keep it so so that we can keep having the next um, PhD from Pakistan here, who who might get us that better better way of doing a delivery for our uh, contraception, because she had an opportunity to come here to study, to be heard and be
0: taken seriously, as she is. We we want to um, more represent the ideals of this country than the disadvantages of any place else. Yeah,
1: and and that's what I remember when I am feeling down and out. I was like wait, we still have people who are fighting to get here, to be able to have this discourse, to be able to talk and not get killed, right? To be able to express themselves, to be able to have this beautiful thing called freedom of speech, but which I always say, which also has responsibility. I was able to have an interfaith center where we had Friday prayers uh, in the afternoon. We had the Jewish club meeting Friday night. We had,
0: and then Christians could worship there on Sunday. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's America. Yeah. That's uh, I I love those stories about those shared churches or synagogues or whatever you know where you know all the different groups in the community I'll sort of use it you know on every every separate hour because it 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 just has this feeling of community and fellowship to it and I think you're pointing out here Monica the silver lining of now we're in crisis together and we do what we tend to do in this country is pitch together just closer to try to figure out how to solve it. I have every faith, as I think you do, that we're gonna be able to do that. So Monica, as we talk, it really feels like um, you might be putting in a bunch of calls to a bunch of your colleagues, am I right? I think so, right? We don't have an excuse not to. So uh,
1: hopefully uh, together you and I can invite, invite, invite. And if we have friends, we can say to the other, hey, I know what you can do on the policy side. And Monica Corsaro will be calling you on the religious side. Let's get
0: organized. I think that's great. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment, and we have not a moment to lose getting things organized so that uh, we get everybody through this bizarre and um, extremely unfortunate time. Amen. Monica Corsaro, thank you so much for being on the Fall of Roe podcast and talking to us about Clergy and their historical role in making sure people got through these horrific experiences, and um, alas, maybe the necessity for us to put back those um, those underground railroads, if you would, um, these these clergy support systems um, for the people that our American policy appears to be getting set to endanger now. Yes, yes, more than ever, Monica Cosero. Thank you so much. Uh, been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau. It's been my pleasure to host this broadcast for you today. And if you'd like to hear more, please subscribe on Apple podcasts or Google podcasts and give us a five star review. If you'd like to connect with me in some way, please go to follow for information. Thank you.